Thanks for downloading this podcast from The Rock of York. We hope it inspires you. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can get in touch with us on Twitter, at The Rock of York, or search for The Rock of York on Facebook. And of course, there's the website at www.rockofyork.co.uk. But you probably already knew that. Here's something you might not know. And uh, we're going to do a little bit of teaching conversation tonight, um, particularly on a subject that arose last time, which I think was very important, about um, uh, a phrase that he's used about taking the Bible literally and uh, all the issues that go along with that, what that means, how we should approach it and address it. So um, Chris and I are going to have a little shot at that, but Chris is very graciously going to take the, uh, the lead shot at it, at treasure. So Lord, help us to have ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to receive. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, you're on. Not if I like it. Uh, Okay then, um... We, we're picking up uh, from a question that, that Dave asked um, a couple of weeks ago, and it was one that he asked at the end, which means, you know, if you ask a question at the end, you can never really get into it because you've already sort of run out of time. Um, and sometimes it, the, the depth that would be needed to answer a question properly, um, you know, you need to go in, think about it. But in all honesty, I've never stopped thinking about it since because... But for one thing too, and I'll tell you what the question was, it was about, you know, uh, for those people uh, who, you know, proclaim to be Christ followers who take the Bible literally, are those who don't, which in essence would be us, if if you want to look at the the opposite side of the coin, uh, are, are we the ones then who in essence look like the wolves in sheep's clothing because we're professing to be Christian, but we're not sort of holding to a literal um, interpretation of the Bible, and it's a it, it's it's a a good good question. And um, I, at the end, I know that I said about we have to remember, and we'll probably look at this a little bit more. That when you think in terms of wolves amongst che- sheep, um, the one thing that you know that they do is attack. So the one thing that you know as a definition of a wolf. Uh, is that there's going to be an attacking going on. There's never going to be uh, a niceness. Um, there's going to be something that's trying to pull down or destroy. Um, so we're going to look at that in a little while because Peter uh, does give information about who these wolves are and I think you're going to find that quite uh, interesting. But first of all, I just want to give you, if you look at the, the dictionary, the word literal, it just says taking words in their most basic sense without metaphor or exaggeration. That's what literal means. And um, I would have to say right from the start, there is no one, no one who takes the Bible literally, honestly. People might, excuse me, people might say they do, but they don't. It's usually the fact that they have been handed a sort of overall view of what the Bible is about and um, they have sort of one single interpretation of it, and that's what they're taking literally. 
not the whole thing. So um, if you were then to say, okay, look at the, the Old Testament and you see all the stories that are going on, some, some of the things that are just absolutely awful, um, and you would say, well, are we taking that literally? They would probably say, oh, well, I don't know. Um, because they wouldn't want to basically hang their hat on something which seemed so barbaric or what have you. Um, so really, uh, I've written here that most people, what they mean when they say that they take uh, the Bible literally is that they uh, have received an overall single interpretation of all the Bible, which is a basically closed, static idea, um, which they're happy to buy into. Um, and if you think about it, I can even simplify that down to uh, Genesis uh, 3, uh, man created, sinned, fell, you know, from grace. Then you've got the, all of the whole Testament and the law and all that going on. Then suddenly you get the coming of Christ, who then gives his life to die on the cross in order to save people from their sin and to stop them having uh, e eternal conscious torment in hell forever. And that would be what they literally hold to. Is, is that making sense? It's quite simple. But in fact, taking the whole Bible literally is, is probably very uh, unlikely. Now, this is an interesting thing that I read the, the other day. It says this. When Christians talk about clear biblical truth, because that's another thing that we say, oh, it clearly tells you in the Bible. Uh, and it's a, it's a phrase that a lot of uh, fundamental list type uh, Christians use. Oh, well, it clearly says, um, the, the, the slide went on to say, but when there is over 40,000 denominations of Christianity in the world, how can it be clear if there's 40,000 Christian denominations? Um, so we have to even look at that to say, when, the, when we say the Bible clearly says, it only clearly says it in the context of the presumption that we're putting upon the text. Now, there's nothing wrong with that in essence, but as long as we understand that that, um, that is what's happening. And then I read something else which I thought was, was great. I don't know whether any of you have heard of a guy called Brian Zand. He's, uh, he's prolific in his writings, an author. And he wrote this, he says, much of today's church relies more on a book that the early church didn't have than the Holy Spirit, which they did have. Now, if anything that we learn tonight, can we write that down somewhere and actually bring that into our uh, activities and our operation in the context of how we want to run this place? Uh, rather than, uh, and, I, and I don't believe we, we have done this, I think we all understand how we operate here. We don't make the, the Bible the be-all and end-all, because we, it, was, it was the Word became flesh, Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us. It wasn't the book becoming flesh, so we get that, but sometimes we can act as though the Bible has more authority than the living Word, which was Christ, who came actually to show us the Father. And when all said and done, I think if you want to... Uh, decide where we stand on how we look at scripture we have to say if it's put through Jesus 
and it comes out the other side and we think that doesn't seem right or it doesn't stand the test, then we should maybe question it because Jesus has to be the lens through which we put it all. So when we talk about uh, Jesus being the exact representation of the Father, so if it doesn't look like Jesus, then it's not God. So, so you know, I just want to, to, to throw that out to you. Um, I think to have integrity as, as a people, the best thing to do when anybody says to you, uh, you know, well, do you not do you take the Bible literally uh, uh, or what have you? I would say that integrity has to say about certain things. Well, I just don't know. I don't know what I think about certain things. And they would say, well, surely you ought to know because you're a believer. But to have integrity, we would have to say, I just don't know. Now, there's things that we might have an idea about and we can look in and, and compare uh, scriptures and we can compare lots of things to come to a, a broader understanding. But at times, in order to have integrity and to actually take it literally, I know it sounds a bit of a, of a contradiction in terms, but in order to take it literally, you have to say, if I take this literally, I have to say, I just don't know because it seems to not make sense to me. So that's how I would have in integrity in that. Now, just a, an, another thing. Um, a couple of months ago, I, uh, well, since October last year, we've been going through uh, various uh, things about understanding the Bible and how it's, we should approach it and whatnot. And one of the weeks I did, I, I spoke about the Genesis, uh, Genesis 6 and about the giants and the Nephilim. And it was interesting how quite a few people had never heard of that. And it was almost as though I was making something up. And uh, it was all a bit odd. But you see, that's the thing. If you're going to say, we take it literally, you have got to take Genesis 6 and you've got to say, whatever's going on there, we need to understand that because it matters. Or we say, we don't take it literally and it has some of the symbolic meaning or whatnot. And, and even then, I've spoken about Satan and about the devil and I've taken you through a, um, uh, a, a study on how the fact that there's basically two scriptures uh, in the Bible that we're talking about tonight that a whole doctrine of what you would call demonology of, of Satan and his demons that it's based on. When we get down to the... The, the understanding of the devil and his angels and what they call end, end time eschatology, it, more of it comes from the book of Enoch than it does the Bible. Now, the book of Enoch is not included in the Bible, yet the Christian church believes the theology of uh, the devil and his angels from the book of Enoch. And, and if I say, do you know that your understanding of the devil comes from the book of Enoch? You'd go, does it? Now, isn't it interesting that we didn't know that that's where it came from? Because what we've been handed is this uh, idea that this is the package, and most people don't read it. I mean, I, I, uh, somebody had put this in uh, one of the posts. I'm convinced that people who demand a hyper-literal reading of the Old Testament have never actually read it, <laughs> which is quite interesting. They just seem uh, too blissfully or conveniently uh, to ignore the horrible implications of certain passages of, of Scripture and certain ones of the church fathers, Oregon, Gregory of Nyssa, John, whoever he is, Cassian and Augustine, all thought it was akin to blasphemy 
to read some passages of the Old Testament because they believed it, it, it totally maligned God's character. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? And yet people will say, no, I, I'm, I'm a, a follower of, of Christ and a lover of God, and yet they will attach certain things to his character and nature. So I, I hope this is, this is making sense. So we come to, um, you know, uh, these understandings. Like I say, our theology is made up of um, information from books that are not even included in the canon. And then we say, well, we take the Bible literally, which I find very interesting. Um, so, for instance, I wanted to throw out um, a scripture, and I was meant to write it down, but I haven't. Um, with God, all things are possible. Yeah? Now, that's brilliant, and we love that, and we'll say we take that literally, right? Sounds good. Take that literally. Until somebody says, okay then, so what about universalism? Universalism, for those who are not sure what it means, is that... God in Christ has reconciled the whole world to himself and it doesn't matter whether a person receives, you know, accepts Christ into the life. It's just a done deal because God through Christ has reconciled the world to himself and therefore everybody is already saved, right? But the moment you say that, they'll go, oh, well, no, I don't believe that. But you've just said, with, with God, all things are possible. So it shows you how we cherry pick and we, we are selective about what we say we take literal and, and what we don't. Um, I'm not going to go a lot, through a lot of verses like that, but for instance, the doctrine of the lake of fire, which you'll have all heard of, um, it says at the end that the devil and his angels are going to be thrown into the lake of fire and death and the false prophet, blah, blah, blah. Now, if you really get down to it, that's only mentioned in, uh, in Revelations and, and, and a few other places, very, very few, but the one that uh, in Jude, where it talks about uh, the lake of fire, at that time, they were literally talking about a, uh, a place under the Dead Sea, its actual location is, and it's where Sodom and Gomorrah actually was. It was where those places were. And underneath it, if you look into geography, it's got the, the worst... Um, uh, what, do, what do you call the faults? Um, ge ge geological faults of anywhere in the world, right there and under it is, is sulfur fires that continually burn. Back in Jude's day, they were still burning and you could, you could physically see it. And therefore, when he talks about the lake of fire, he had a reference point, first of all, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah that was blown up and destroyed, that to them would be a measurement of the worst catastrophe and the worst end that anybody could have, yeah? So that's the, the association. And there was a literal place that was bubbling and, and assault with sulfur fires. So you see, we then get a theory of the lake of fire in future times, end times, which is based on something that was very literal to them in that day. Am I being clear? I hope I am. Okay. Oh, right. So what we have to do in all of this is be careful that we're not afraid to say, 
within what we have, and I'm, I'm one for, and Anthony will tell you, I'll pursue anything. So I've read the Jubilees, I've, I've read the Book of Jasher, and I've read Enoch, and I've read them all. And it's really interesting that some of the things that are not included in the Bible, you, you've suddenly got this broader picture, and you think, well, why wasn't that included? I don't know. It just wasn't. But what I'm trying to get at is that if we're only going to use the, um, the text that we have uh, without realising that there's bits that don't quite make sense without adding other things, things to it. So, um, I believe that there's a laziness sometimes if we only want to say, well, look, it, it says it. We'll just, there's a laziness there because we don't really want to be bothered to seek uh, deeper meaning. And um, I want to also say, remember, at the time when all this is going on, and this is a bit of a controversial subject, a lot of the things that were being said at that time, and especially in the Gospels, when it talked about the end of the age, they literally thought that something was about to happen from Jesus' death within the next 40 odd years from Jesus dying, they, they were talking in terms of that period and those, term, those terminologies, uh, like at the end of the age and, uh, um, oh, I'm trying to think of the other one, but you, you know what I mean, what's the other term? It's not just the end of the, the age, but there's, there's another one, isn't there? Oh, in the world to come and all that. They are references that we or the, the Christian church have attached to a theology about the end time and about the second coming of Jesus uh, and, and the rapture and all this, that and the other, when actually what they were saying at that time was for them there and then, because if you read it, it'll say that to be very soon happening, it literally says, literal, I said literally, it says that you know, to happen very soon. Well, if it's to happen very soon, it's not 2,000 years ahead. And it would, be, it would say things like, in their lifetime, you see, that these things would be happening. Well, it was either going to happen in their lifetime, or it wasn't. We're not talking about, I mean, here we are 2,000 years later, and we're still waiting. It gets a bit odd, doesn't it? So, I mean, that's for another, another study. Um, but anyway, I believe that we are in another reformation and we've talked about it haven't we um, uh, about the fact that every now and again something comes around and just like what happened uh, with Martin Luther um, we are in another one of of those uh, yes changes where things are coming around and things are having to be looked at again I like uh, what Brian McLaren says in his book here and I'll, I'll just just read says, <clears throat> every 500 years or so, the Christian faith holds a rummage sale. Um, <clears throat> it sorts through all that it has accumulated over recent centuries. What feels like extra baggage, it sends to the recycling center. And what feels like essential travel gear, uh, it preserves for the future. Um, and it talks about that basically after the uh, collapse of the Roman Empire, uh, 500 AD, there was a, 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 a big... Uh, reformation of, of sorts and then around a thousand AD there was another that was called the great do you pronounce it schism schism whole bunch of people quarreling and not getting along um, and then there was the great reformation around 1500 AD which we associate with Ma Martin Luther 
Now, what's really amazing about that, I also read further on this. To the people of Martin Luther's day, um, it says this, to them, Luther instigated not renewal or reform, but betrayal. Whoa, now that's interesting. It says, <laughs> okay, uh, Luther instigated not renewal or reform, but betrayal. Now, we know he brought reform, but that's how they saw it at the time. To the people at the time, he was being, and I'm going to use the word, he was a wolf, <laughs> in essence, because what he, what he was, he was a lover of God, but he saw things that he's saying, this does not represent um, the God uh, or the Abba of Jesus. And so he said, I am willing to even uh, appear to be a, a, a betrayer. Now, I'm I don't want to mix metaphors because I don't want to say, right, yes, we are, we are the wolves, wolves that are going around a bit like Martin Luther because you could say that there is a parallel on that. Um, but I'm just trying to show you that anybody who challenges what may be the mainstream uh, idea can potentially be seen as a wolf, even though, you know, they're not really being a wolf at all. They're actually bringing uh, the, the, uh, the revelation of, of, of something new. Um, so, where am I? Right, I also want to say, just a very, before I move on to this whole thing of wolves in sheep's clothing, um, if we want to know how to read uh, sort of the scriptures, we have to not only understand how the biblical writers wrote, but we have to understand how they read, because how they read things is also akin to how they, they wrote things. And um, the, there's basically three, and I don't want to get into English literature stuff because I'm not very good at it, and I'm not trying to be clever, but I just wanted to, to give you uh, the, the, the understanding of, of this, because it really, it, I'm thinking, yeah, we are in a re reformation, because from Jesus through to the 18th century, there was basically one uh, way of, of, of reading things. In the, it, well, no, there wasn't one way of reading things. There, there, was, there was a way of reading things that incorporated many ways. Um, th it, it was very wide. I'll just give you these words. So there was a multi-level hermeneutic. These big words, aren't there? But there was the plain meaning context but there was the allegorical subtext, there was the wide paraphrastic permission, and the eisegetical elbow room. Oh, I like elbow room. That really means, come on, we've got space to mess around with this. That's known as drash in the Jewish culture. Drash, drash-ick, it's called. But, well, there you go, wiggle room. We'll have wiggle room then. But this is the point. It, was an, it wasn't a closed text with one meaning that depended just on the author's intent, but it was actually open and it was constantly evolving and it was fluid. That was how the, the author would write, but how he would also read, you see. So it was very, very all-encompassing. But you see, in the 17th centuries, because of uh, the ascendancy of Western ra rationalism, and like I say, I'm not trying to be clever. I'm just telling you how things changed. 
what came into being, the philosophy changed to what was what's called Romantic Humanism, where it became a closed text because it came really reduced to the point, what did the author mean? What the author meant, that's the meaning, and there's no questioning about it. Now, you can see how that would really close it up, but we know for a fact that, that the biblical authors were often writing about things that they had no idea about. So if they're writing in apocalyptic terms, they might not even had a clue what they were talking about, but they were writing it. So it mustn't be just the author's intent. It must have been open. We would call that prophecy, wouldn't we? Or or, or, uh, the the leading of the spirit. But you see, the way that it used to be, this period of time, the 17th, 18th century, just couldn't handle it. So they closed all text to a strictly literal contextual hermeneutic, which meant that's it, it's closed down, it has one, one meaning and it's down to the author alone. He says what it means and that's the end of it, there's, there's no other meanings. Then we get into the 20th century and, and there's, a, there's a bit of a change, um, it's what's called structuralism. The text was still closed and it still had only one meaning, but that could now be scientifically determined. And it wasn't just the author who had a say, because scientifically they could look at uh, not only the author as a being and what he was, who he was as a person, but they also looked at what was his background, what was his upbringing, what was his p- political views, what was going on in his life and in his, in his, uh, in his, his uh, town or his country, which would have influence on the meaning of the text as well. Now you might say, why, am, why are you telling me this? I'm wanting you to understand that we've now moved, by the time we've got to the, the, the 21st century now, we've actually moved right back to the way it was in Jesus's day, which I find quite amazing. And it's, if you look online, it, it, it tells you that our mode of understanding and reading has gone through this, um, I suppose, a, a reformation in that sense, but gone back. So nowadays, when we read, we've actually gone back more like to how it was in Jesus's day. And so listen to what the, this, it says here. I think this is just great. As a kickback, to all the presumptions that were, that were being made, a return to these ancient hermeneutics where the text becomes open again, where there can be lots of, of, of ideas about what it means. And it's not just the author, author alone, and it's not just the influence of society, but it can have many meanings. And I thought this was, was wonderful. It says, once um, the, the text is finished... The roller coaster ride of its interpretive activity begins because texts become community property of all who engage them. These text engagers form a corporate womb. I, I just think this is beautiful. Who suffer labor pains as they, con, uh, they continue to give multiple births to varied and vibrant readings, unknown and unconsidered by the original author. So it means that it can actually, from what the author was here, it can actually be expanded into something quite amazing. So that's where we are now in this day and age, and this is how we read. That's how we read. So we have to then not look at the Bible and be like they were 
in the 17th, 18th century where there were clothes and there was only one meaning to the text. It, has that made sense? I, I, I hope it has. I hope I'm not boring you at all. Anyway, okay, moving on then. Um, Matthew uh, 7.15, if I can quickly just get it on here, is where that passage is about um, wolf in sheep's clothing. So if we read it, I'm going to put it in the NIV. Uh, where is it then, Matthew 7? Have you got it? Okay. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit you will recognise them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes? I don't get this bit at all. Or figs from thistles? Likewise, move on. Every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, move on a little bit more. By their fruit, you will recognize them, and not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, we just, yeah. did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers. Now, I'm not going to be silly and try and, you know, do what I said we can't do, but I just want you just to very simply look at sometimes what we may misunderstand here because First of all, you shall know them by their fruit. Now, that's interesting because they're bearing fruit. It doesn't say you'll know them by their doctrine. And that's what we often misunderstand about our, as, as, as believers. We think that our doctrine has got to be kosher and perfectly right in order not to be a wolf. But actually, that's not true. You, you, can, you can be a most incredible sheep and not have one clue about what the Bible means. You can be a beautiful, bearing fruit sheep, right? Because it's nothing to do with doctrine or beliefs. Um, and and I, I just thought it was lovely that after I'm speaking last week about the fruit of the, the Spirit, it, 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 we, we understand and we're going to look at that just in a few minutes. But look at when it says, some will say we prophesied, these are the wolves, it's the wolves who are saying this. Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out devils and, and do wonderful works? Wouldn't you have thought that that was fruit? I would have. But it says, you'll know them by their fruit. But this wasn't, this wasn't fr fruit. That's not fruit. And I just found that really quite amazing because even there, we can be carrying on in the wave of, of, of our evangelical upbringings and we can say fruit is prophecy, speaking forth what's going to be and, and, and words of knowledge and casting out demons and this sort of thing. But they, that's not classed as, as fruit. So the fruit, whatever they were manifesting, was suspect. And yet the other point is this, we won't recognize them because in essence, everything that they seem to be doing other than the, f the fruit that we're not sure what it is, we're not even going to recognize who they are. It says beware. But if you're in disguise, it's, it's not an easy thing to figure out 
who's who, especially if people are doing things that you could tick off and say, do you know, that looks pretty amazing. That's awesome. I'm more likely to say, you know, you're in, I'm out in that sense, because you're doing far greater things than I'm doing. Are you following what I'm saying? So I don't know what their fruits were in the sense of uh, specifics, but they had fruits of sorts. So we have to ask, who is this directed at? And I've already sort of um, touched on the fact that when these things were being spoken, the th- the th- I'm going to call it a thing because I don't know what to call it. The thing that had happened amongst them with Jesus uh, coming, uh, him bringing this incredible, more beautiful gospel, um, it, had tra- it had just revolutionized things. And therefore, most of the things that were being talked about were meant for them then. Now, re- there's, there's going to be, in a, in a few years, the Roman Empire absolutely going to obliterate Israel, the Jerusalem, the temple is going to be smashed. Their whole understanding of everything is going to be destroyed. And in many ways, and there are people out there who take this as their understanding of of Scripture, that most of these things that are being said there are with this in mind. So, for instance, beware of false prophets who are trying to pull you back into what was before the old law, because what Jesus has done now, what is created, this is the new thing. But there are going to be people who parade as sheep, but will pull you back into that old way. Do you see what I mean? So that was more of the meaning that was going on, on, on there. So there's another thing that's interesting. We often think that when, um, uh, when, when a person has been a wolf in sheep's clothing it's associated well you're telling people just what they want to hear so like we could be uh, uh, accused of oh well you know your grace message you know you're full of love and you're full of inclusion and all this that's that's uh, a wolf because basically you're telling people what they want to hear rather than the truth about their wickedness their sin and the judgment that's to come and they've got to clear up so we can be accused of being wolves because we're not telling the full truth and we're only, you know, we're, we're telling people what they want to hear. But in fact, I would say it's totally the other way around because I'll tell you what people want to hear. They want to hear that there's justice in the world. They want to hear that people are going to get the comeuppance. They want to know that if justice isn't served in this life, that there's people going to get it in the next. That's what people want to hear. And isn't it funny how we twist it? round and when we talk about you know the 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 gospel more beautiful gospel we can then be accused of oh you're just telling people what they want to hear anything for an easy life and blah 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 but it's actually it's the opposite way around anyway right so um some people say well you know if you don't know the word of god it's easy to be taken advantage of and you can fall away but we've already said the word of God isn't as clear as we thought it was because there's 40,000 different denominations. So heck, we, we, you know, there's, there's a few interpretations out there. So to say things like, oh, well, if you only knew the word of God, you wouldn't be deceived. I mean, that's a bit off, isn't it? So I, I, don't, hold, I don't hold to that at all. What I do hold to is that while ever Jesus 
is central in the context of where we get our measurement of who God the Father is, we're not going to go far wrong. And even if we get it a bit wrong, then there's grace for it because we're seeking to measure the, the living word, you see. So anyway, right. Um, hmm. I want to look at 2 Peter 1.16 because this is interesting. Peter, like I say, he, he is the one who uh, talks a bit more about this wolf, uh, wolves in sheep's clothing, and it's quite interesting. Um, yeah, one, NIV still, please. 2 Peter 1.16. What's interesting, how do, you, how do we, he's really going to say, how do we find or how do we identify uh, who these uh, wolves are? Um, are we going on there? Now, this is Peter talking. He's saying, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, all I'm wanting to use there is this, that what he's basically saying, in my interpretation, how's that? I better say that, and I know, um, that what wolves tend to do is make up stories. He says we didn't make up stories. Now, wolves tend to make up stories. And I've got to be careful here because uh, I don't want to, you know, sort of throw stones at things. But like I said at the beginning, I can take you to incidences where there are doctrines that, in my view, have become made up stories. And uh, the more you actually get into reading it and finding other commentaries and, and, and other things that go with it, you realise that these things have been made up in order to control people rather than what Jesus came to do was to set people free. So I think when we talk about substitutional penal atonement, what amazes me about that is that, like I said at the beginning, what the early church didn't have was a Bible. What they did have was the Spirit to help them, the Holy Spirit. But by the time we get to um, John Calvin in 1560, I don't know, 1500s, you've now got this whole doctrine that the, the mainstream uh, church has got hold of and it's, it's, you know, it's really become the, the, the main emphasis. But when you actually look at Scripture, you would have to say, does it actually hold to water because the, the, the questions we've asked, for instance, and I don't want to get, it, uh, get into it all tonight, but if we're not careful, just the suggestion that Jesus saves us from God, what do you make of that? It just doesn't sound right, yet that's what the substitutional penal atonement, that's really what that's about, that Jesus has to take the wrath of God in order that I don't have to. So let's just put it into, you know, very plain, literal words. Jesus saves me from God. Well, that, that to me, I think, well, heck, I don't know whether I want to know anything about this now at all, because it just doesn't make any sense. Why would Jesus, who is God, be saving me from God? Are they, are they, are they a split personality, you know, good cop, bad cop? You have to go through all that and you start thinking, something's not hanging together there. But 1500s was when this, I'm going to call it, story, made up story, 
based on, yes, stuff from the Bible became a theory that is what controls so many. Equally, uh, we've, we've talked about it many times, we're about hell and et eternal conscious torment. I only have one thing to say about that. Well, uh, probably two. Um, but any, anybody or any one who has, um, who can't get the, oh, I don't, right. If we are to be punished infinitely for finite actions, think about that. We wouldn't do that to our children. So, okay, I get discipline and have no problem even there being something of a restorative, curative, cleansing situation at the other side. But it's not going to be infinite because we wouldn't, we who are evil, wouldn't do that to our kids. How much more then with Jesus? I, so it's things like that that we have to say made up stories. See? And of course, we talk, talked about hell because we, we said that hell, even as a place, does not exist. It's a made up word. And even, you know, people say, oh, well, you know, Jesus talked about it more than anything. No, he didn't. He talked about a place called Guiana and it was a dump. It was a tip. And the reason why it was constantly uh, burning was because that's where they burned the rubbish and where the dogs used to fight over the scraps. So there was, you know, gnashing of teeth. Makes total sense. But we've made a, a doctrine of it to scare the pants off everybody. Made up stories. Am I being too, too harsh? I don't know. Anyway, okay. I've talked about Jesus being central. Um, I think that's, I've already mentioned about Jesus being central. He, uh, oh, yeah. 2 Peter 2.19. Is it 2.19? Coming up. Uh, is it coming? Oh, yes, thank you. Uh, hmm. I've got uh, secret heresies. I must have looked at it in a different, in, in a different uh, uh, translation. But anyway, the, the, the point is, in one of the script, in one of the verses, it talks about um, the intro secretly introducing secret heresies. Now, uh, it's funny that heresies uh, have only become heresies since Constantine. <laughs> Do you know that? Because Back in the early church, they all interpreted what Jesus had done all in different ways. And all heresy means is a choice. It's a choice to see things in a particular way. So I'm, I'm in heresy, in, in essence, if I disagree with a different point of view. But it's not a negative. All it is, is a choice to believe something different. And the thing was, in early, the early church... They all had a different idea about what this Jesus meant. And it was all fantastic and in different... That's why Paul was sending letters to different places, answering different questions. Because they all had a different idea what this, this Jesus meant. So heresy wasn't a, a problem um, until Constantine came along. And he says, I'll tell you what, we've got to unite everybody here. So what we're going to do is have a, a list of stuff that we're all going to believe and everybody's going to believe the same. And then what's the result of that? If you don't believe the same as me, you're a heretic and then you end up getting burnt. Now, isn't that interesting? 
So what happens when we get these secret heresies? Oh, 2 Peter 2, 1. If you want to go back to verse 1, please. Sorry, you don't really have to go to it. But what we could say that when a, when a heresy is secret, in essence, there's a, there's a des- desire to, um, to control. Because when you get to this, we, instead of going back, stay here. Because look what it says. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. Now, immediately we look at depravity and we always think sin, don't we? We think of wickedness and sort of really debased living. But slaves of depravity is, in many ways, when you're seeking to live outside of grace and want the law. What is more depraved than wanting to live by law when an incredible gift of grace has been given? So there's a slavery and the secret heresies, and those secret heresies are, if if you don't do this, you're not going to be in, and if you don't do that, you're not going to be in. See? Okay. Um, Right, where am I? So here's the thing. What We asked a bit ago, what is the message that was being produced um, by these uh, false prophets, which basically are what was being talked about in Matthew, about the ones who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, if you go to 2 Peter 1.5, what's interesting is you get what they're not producing rather than the fruit that they are. And I thought that's interesting because I'd have liked to know what fruit they were talking about. But look what it says. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection. Is there any more? Love. Right. So what we do know is, in essence, the wolves or the false prophet, the fruit that they were manifesting was not that. There you go. Uh, look. Right. One more thing, because I'm nearly finished, and then I can say what it wants to say. Um, in the early church, um, the ones who had converted to Christ were known as people of the way, and you've heard that before. But they were also, because of the fact that they'd come out of their Jewish faith, they were actually called atheists, which is an interesting thing, because you'd think atheist, in our term now, it means a god rejector and not want any God at all. But because of the way that they lived their life of grace outside of law, the people who were under law were convinced that the people who were following Christ were absolutely godless because they were so free, so incredibly transformed by the, the, what they had experienced that everybody around who was religious actually called them atheists. Now, I find that really interesting and it blows my mind because all I've ever understood in church uh, circles is, oh, you are separate, you know, you see yourself as very different, very proper, uh, doing all the right things. But what grace had done for them was set them apart because they were so full of joy and so free and not under any bondage. And so what was trying to happen with these wolves in sheep's clothing were trying to bring them back into slavery because the slavery was, was uh, 
more defined as godly than what they had found in Christ. Now that takes some getting your head around, but, but that really is the, the, the key here. So I think that's all I want to say, I think. Um, yeah, and I'll, I'll pass it on to you. So. All right, I'm not going to take long. Uh, just really to, to summarize uh, and introduce a little phrase in a minute to, to try and help you with this. Again, let, let me say from the outset that um, none of what we are saying diminishes the importance of the Bible uh, as text and even in its context as divine text. What it does is says we have to remove the nonsense because the nonsense is usually a put-down. And the put-down being, we take the Bible literally, which is not true, right? It, it, it's a lie. Let, let, me just, let me just illustrate and then give you this little phrase and then show you some examples and, uh, and, and, and finish it up. Um, do we take the Bible literally as history? Because if you do, you've got a big problem. Because if you take it as history as we understand history now, you would, have to, you would have to accept that historically the Bible is not as accurate as people would like you to believe that it is. But from a fundamentalist viewpoint, you can say, well, yeah, it definitely happened like this. So the actually, there are people who've said this, but for example, there is no archaeological evidence of Jericho existing or the walls of Jericho falling down. People have tried to find it. Now, that's not a problem because the issue of Jericho and the walls of Jericho, it's less important that you understand there was a physical city that had physical wide walls that physically fell down than it is that you understand how strongholds are overcome when we're obedient to God and the power of praise and the power of faith come in, strongholds fall. If you believe that that Jericho was a literal place, and it may have been, and you want historic evidence that it literally fell when they say that it has, which it may have been, but there's no evidence to prove that, but you don't know how to bring down a stronghold in your life, and you don't know how to come an enemy, it's done you zero good, so therefore the word of God has no power because it was never meant to be that, okay? So, so historically, do we take it literally? Um, what about the Bible as poetry? Which bits are poetry? And you know from poetry, poetry describes situations, but it also flowers the language and introduces things because poetry is not looking to inform you in the head. It's looking to move you in the heart. So that's why poetry is important. We use literature to try and inform you in the head, but we use poetry to move you in the heart the same that we use music. So you can't deny the Bible uses poetry, in which case, is every poetic statement in the Bible a literal statement? You know, do, I was going to be, well, yeah. Do, do women have breasts like two fawns? As Song of Solomon describes, you know. Um, how he comes up with that illustration, I don't know, but he's speaking prophetic, uh, poetically. So if you were to say, hang on a minute then, any, I've got to use this, any woman who doesn't have breasts that look like fawns, 
and somehow miss the purposes of God. Do you understand what I'm saying? Because you, you have to, it was poetic, okay? Or, or the Bible is prophecy. How, how do you define when prophecy is used because it involves things that you don't know about? The Bible is instruction, which we know it does that. What about the Bible is metaphor? When Jesus said, well, there were two guys in a field, it didn't mean that literally there were two guys in a field or that literally that a man went to sow. It didn't mean that literally. It was using it metaphorically. So, so, so we have to believe it and understand it there. So the Bible is guidance. The Bible gives us guidance. What about the Bible is revelation? When it's showing us things we don't yet know that we need to understand, but we don't know how to figure it out because actually, as Chris said, it's not as clear as you think it is. You know, when people say the Bible's very clear about this, uh, usually it means they're very clear about what it is that they believe the Bible is clear about, but, but often the Bible's not clear. And uh, there are many debates that that's where the, the issue lies in the context of how we define things. I'm not going to go into detail because, you know, time is short and it's not my, my job tonight. So in the Bible, there is conversational language. There is apocalyptic language, which is language that describes terror and horror like like Daniel and like Revelation. And, uh, you know, is there literally a beast with four heads? Is there literally a beast with ten horns? Is there literally going to be a horn that grows out of the ten horns that becomes the one horn? You know, you, these are apocalyptic phrases. So how do you take that literally? People who do take that literally, of course, you know, that there's a big problem when I was uh, growing up because when the common market was ten nations the interpretation was that the common market was the beast of revelation because it was the ten horns. And then, of course, the problem is now it's the beast of 27 horns, soon to become 26. Um, you know, so, so lots of speculation has gone around those things, which I have no problem with the speculation, but don't say that this is what the Bible literally means, Okay. You know, and then there's euphemistic, using euphemism for those of you who understand that term. There's, there's metaphoristic, using metaphor. All of these languages are part of how the Bible speaks. And the other thing I would say in, in defense of the, of the proposal that, that one cannot arrogantly say, we just take the Bible literally, we just believe what the Bible says, would be that in line with Chris saying all these denominations, the church, the church can't even agree on what happened at the cross. Who was saved? How were they saved? By what means? And of course, those theories that we've talked about, penal substitutionary atonement and, and, and um, uh, ransom theory and all of those things um, are, are all different views of the church of how to view what happened at, at the cross. You know, um, uh, the church can't agree on whether we're all saved because of an act of free will or whether we're all saved because you are foreordained to be saved. So there's a group of the, in the church that says, our will decides. And then there's another group of, of, in the church called, this is hyper-Calvinism, that believes in something called double predestination. And by that, they believe the Bible clearly teaches that some people are chosen for eternal life and some people are chosen for eternal damnation and you can't change that because you were chosen from before the foundation of the world. And they will give you a whole batch of scriptures for that to support the fact that the Bible's very clear about this matter 
that we don't have a say in it that we were chosen. The others will say the Bible's very clear that it is entirely down to our free will. And there are a multitude of variations within that. So again, it doesn't make the Bible untrustworthy. It makes us um, sometimes make something of something that was never meant to be made. So let me just move this on. So, of course, the other one is uh, if there is a second coming, when there is a second coming, uh, where will be the second coming? What will happen in the second coming? And the church can't agree on that. But everybody who has a view will tell you the Bible's very clear about when Jesus will come, how he will come, where he will come, and who he will come to. But the truth is, it's only clear to them. So I'm trying to free you from the condemnation, like Chris says, that very often that kind of attitude is a wolf attitude that comes to constrict and bring us back to a way of thinking that actually maybe doesn't allow us to consider what God is. Now, let, let me talk for just, just four or five minutes on how those who say they believe the, believe the Bible literally are inconsistent in their interpretation. Let me illustrate. One of the best known scriptures in the Bible is John uh, 3 and 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 of course it runs through to verse 16, but John chapter 3, verse 1. Let, let me just run these for you a little bit. John chapter 3, and uh, I'm going to probably just do six or seven verses, possibly, but you'll get the point. There was a, a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. And Jesus replied, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. He says, how can someone be born again? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Uh, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Now, so people will say it's very clear that Jesus says you must be born again. But this was a personal conversation with Nicodemus. Now, I actually believe you must be born again. But actually, the conversation was specific to Nicodemus. Now, you'll see why this is important. Do I believe that we all need to be born again? Yes. But who was the conversation? He said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Okay? Now, let's look at Luke 18 and verse 18. This is the story of someone called the rich young ruler. Another individual who comes to Jesus. So in John 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. In Luke 18, we have the story of a certain ruler or the rich young ruler coming to Jesus saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? Nicodemus is coming. How do I get into the kingdom? This guy's coming. How do I get into the kingdom? What do I do to get eternal life? Why do you call me God? Jesus answered, no one is good except God. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you know, etc., etc. Um, uh, all, and he said, verse 21, all these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor 
and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And when he heard this, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, it go, Jesus goes on to say how hard it is for a rich man to go through the eye of a needle. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, here's my point. Literalists will tell you, you literally must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not tell you, you must literally sell all that you have and give to the poor to inherit the kingdom of heaven. Now, if you're going to use one as literal, you have to be consistent and use the other as literal, but they don't. So they'll be still have all their possessions and not have sold them and given to the poor, but telling you, we believe the Bible literally, you must be born again. But that same literal requires, if that's the interpretation for everybody, then the interpretation must also be, sell all you have and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Do you understand what I'm saying? So I don't have a problem with either of those principles, but please don't tell me that we should take the Bible literally and only accept the one, but then not accept the other. So there are often inconsistencies in this statement. Now, um, let me also look at one more scripture, Lazarus and the rich man. Luke 16, verse 19, is the story of this beggar called Lazarus and the rich man, and Lazarus used to sit at the rich man's gate begging, and the rich man would never help him, okay? So there was a rich man dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores, and the time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich Now, what is Abraham's side? Is it a literal Abraham's side? Because if you take the Bible literally, there is Abraham somewhere with a hole in his side. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to be real careful on this. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, or in the King James Version, it says, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away. So this is the key scripture that literalists will use to show you that there is a divide between heaven and hell. Because that, after all, is what the story is about in their view. But I want to propose you something. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus. Now, hang on, I've missed one bit, haven't I? And the angels came to him. The rich man died, was buried in Hades where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water, cool my tongue because I'm in agony in the fire. But Abraham replied, and I want you to listen to this. Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things, while Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Here's what he's saying. If you take this literally, rich people go to hell, poor people go to heaven. There is no other reason for the rich man being in what, what people would say is hell or Hades than the fact that he was rich and didn't feed Lazarus. There's no reason for Lazarus to be in Abraham's bosom or what people would say heaven except for the fact that he was poor and a beggar. Therefore, if you're taking it literally, you have to say rich people go to hell, 
poor people go to heaven. Now, who believes that? Who will tell you, I believe the Bible literally? Do you understand what I'm saying? So it means something else in the text, beyond the text, that is more precious than actually this whole fight of supposedly taking the Bible literally. Now, let me give you just a couple more. Okay, let's go to Paul. I've deliberately chosen things from the New Testament. I could give you lots more. Um, uh, Paul, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the traditions just as I pass them on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of, of the woman is the man. And the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covers dishonors his head. So therefore, don't tell me you believe the Bible literally and wear a baseball cap when you pray. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, which is the man, which dishonors Christ. It is the same as having her head shaved. So he says, if you take this literally, either women cover your head or shave your head, but don't come in with your hair and pray or prophesy. Uh, a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. This is very sexist as well, uh, misogynistic. If it, if it, but a woman, uh, since it, but the woman is the glory of the man. For man did not come from the woman, but woman from the man. Let me take just a little further because it's interesting. Since he is the image of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For man did not come from the man. I've read that. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. It is for this reason a woman uh, that a woman ought to have. A th it is for this reason that a woman ought to have authority. I'm struggling over her own head, because of the angels. Right? Because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor a man independent of woman, etc., etc. I think you kind of get the picture there. I could take it a few verses on. But basically what Paul says, he goes on to say, it is a, it is a shame for a man to have long hair. Right? It's, so what is long? Who defines what is long? Uh, and, and for a woman not to cover her hair is for a woman to proclaim her own glory. Now, how the church gets around this is that to say, oh, that's only cultural. But how fascinating that we're to take the Bible literally unless that particular group says this is cultural. So we have two brands of the church. One I was raised in where every woman would come into church with a, a head covering, a hat. Another that said that's blatantly wrong and it's really stupid. But if you take it absolutely literally, you've got a problem. One more, because right? You like this one, not a lot, but you like it. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 34. You ladies are not going to like this too much if it's literal. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in church. Now, how many of you think that was meant to be literal across the ages to all people, to you women now? How many of you think there was potentially a context in which Paul was speaking that needed some power and strength, that he needed to mention this legalistic thing to the people he was talking to, 
But if you're going to say we take the Bible literally, then you women have to just shut up. And I don't want you to, because actually, if you do talk, it's a disgrace. That's what the Bible says. Do you understand the point we're making here? That if we get onto the literal thing, it's actually not true, like Chris said. Nobody takes and applies the Bible literally. Now, some things need to be literal. I think, I think Jesus is the source for that. But um, Right, so... Uh, let me give you one amp pull up there, one, two, three, two, nine. I also want women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. What does that mean? Not with braided hair or gold or pearls or expensive clothes. So if any of you women dare to come in here with braided hair, gold, pearls or expensive clothes, right? You are not being modest and you are not being following the scripture and, and, and being accurate to scripture, Okay. It says, but you should be clothed with good deeds appropriate for a woman who professes to worship God. A woman should learn quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach her have authority over a man. She must be silent. Can you see that if you take this stuff literally, you take it out of its context and it actually becomes misogynistic. It becomes the very bondage that Jesus came to break because Jesus was a great emancipator of women. Who were the first at the tomb? Who were the first to speak? And it said the women were the ones who carried the tale. Well, if you follow this as literal, the women weren't allowed to bring the message of Jesus' resurrection. So, we, we having, have a good hammer at that. Um, let, let me introduce something here. How many of you are familiar with the word illiterate? Do you know what illiterate means? Illiterate means that you are not educated, you are not informed, you are illiterate, okay? So let, let, me, let me look at something here. Is the Bible meant to be taken literally or literately? Because the opposite to illiterate is literate. Literate means to be educated because you took on board the information and you have now processed that information in a way that literately you can express the truth of what you have learned rather than literally, which means that whatever it says without any examination, any context, any cultural application, any consideration of the writer, that must be what it means, okay? Which we've shown, if it does mean that, then all of us everywhere in the church, are, are, we, are, we are deceivers and hypocrites because nobody's keeping that. So the issue is to take the Bible literately, not literally. Does that make sense? Literally, not literally, okay? So I want to, I, want to, um, I want to just express this by just reading something from, from Rob Bell's writings, which I think are helpful, and then, and then I'm done. We've got to appreciate individual texts for their distinctive, distinctive genre and their place in the overarching narrative of Scripture. Doing so being studying the poetry of the Psalms in a different way than the Gospel narratives, or prophetic and apocalyptic books. Readers of scripture need to appreciate qualities like genre and plot if they hope to arrive at a sensible understanding of the text. Because in the beginning, someone wrote something down. 
And that's how we got the Bible. Some people wrote some things down. Obvious, right? And true. And absolutely important that we start there. The Bible did not drop out of the sky. It was written by people. Many of the stories in the Bible began as oral traditions handed down from generation to generation until someone collected them, edited them, and actually wrote them down, sometimes hundreds of years later. That's years and years of people sitting around fires, walking along dusty roads, and gathering together in tents and homes and courtyards to hear and discuss and debate and adapt and change these stories, poems, letters, and accounts. The people who wrote these books had lots of material to choose from. There were countless stories floating around, tons of accounts being handed down, massive amounts of material to include or not include. In the Old Testament book of 1 Kings, the author writes in chapter 11, as for the other events of Solomon's reign, all he did and the wisdom he displayed, are they not written in the book of the annals of Solomon? Well, yes, I guess they are. It's just that we have no idea what the author's referring to. Interesting, the assumption on the author's part that not only do we know this, but also that we have access to these annals, which we don't. We see something similar in the Gospel of John where it's written, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not recorded in this book. And then the book ends with this line, Jesus did many other things as well, if every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world could not have room for the books that would be written. It's as if the writer, just to wrap things up, adds, oh yeah, I left a ton of stuff out. The authors of the books of the Bible then weren't just writing. They were selecting and editing and choosing and making decisions about what material content furthered their purposes in writing and what didn't. The writer of the Gospel of Luke I too decided to write an orderly account for you. From the book of Esther, this is what happened. Toward the end of the Gospel of John, these are written that you may believe. There were points these writers wanted to make. Things they wanted their readers to see, insights they wanted to share, stories they wanted to tell. What these writers ultimately created was the library. The Bible is a library of books written by 40 or so authors over roughly 1,500 years on three continents. This library is vast and diverse and covers a massive amount of ground. At various moments over the past several thousand years, people made decisions about what books became part of their Bible and what books were left out. People wrote the books that became the Bible and then other people decided that those books would or would not be included in the Bible. These people had meetings and discussions and developed criteria and had more meetings and discussions and eventually they made decisions. Decisions about what the Bible even is. It's important to point out that these writers and the people who decided whether or not to include their writings in the Bible were real people living in real places at real times. Their purposes in writing then were shaped by their times and places, context and psyches and personal histories and economies and politics and religion and technology and countless other factors. What does it tell us about the world Abraham lived in that when he's told to offer his son as a sacrifice, he doesn't ask for any instructions on how to do it. He sets out to do it as if it's a natural thing for God to ask. The David and Goliath story starts with technology. The Philistines had a new kind of metal that the Israelites didn't. 
The story is undergirded by that primal fear that comes when your neighbor has weapons that you don't have, like spears or guns or bombs. The Roman Empire had particular, a particular line from their military propaganda that began, listen to this, this is Roman military propaganda. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That was about the Roman Empire and about the Caesar. How many of you remember that that's something that Paul then writes about Christ? Why? For a reason. So when, oh Peter, so when the apostle Peter used this phrase, there is no other name under heaven, he's referring to something his readers would have understood. Real people writing in real places at real times, choosing to include some material, choosing to leave out other material. And it turns out that when they wrote, what they wrote about was love and fear and debt and duty and doubt and anger and skepticism and hate and technology and shame and hope and betrayal, the very struggles and issues we're still talking about thousands of years later. And that's why it's so important to not read it like it dropped out of the sky. Because in doing so, you miss the solidarity that comes from realizing that this is a profoundly human book. And the issue is, just think about this, we experience God in fullness when we let God become human in Jesus. Is that true? So therefore, we, we appreciate the fullness of Scripture when we allow Scripture to become human and put it in its proper context, when the Word Christ becomes flesh and when the Word written text is allowed to become flesh, that's when we get a revelation of the glory of the Father full of grace and truth, not by some pointless argument that is based on the issue of we believe the Bible literally, which I emphasise again, nobody actually does. And it's a, it, it's a, it's a, it's a red herring to take away the need to have some conversation and discussion. And I agree with what Chris said about uh, some of the context of, uh, of wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, I hope that's been in some way helpful. And, and I hope you take on board this in, in the mixture of this. The summary of it is that we take the Bible literally Right? We take the Bible literally, which means we make room for it to be able to say what it was always meant to say. That's literally. Okay? So we're making room for it to become an interpretation into our lives that brings life and brings health and, uh, and brings hope and all the stuff that this wonderful... Is it, is it then the Word of God? I say, yeah, it still is. Of course it is. It's God's wonderful way that he has found to describe into our lives the things that we need to know, long as we don't get hung up in time and culture and space and personal issue, but realize, hey, do you know what? It, this is a wonderful word. So even we look at Genesis and say, well, if they had these, as I taught you last time, these stories of you first build a temple and then you bring the image of the God in the temple... And when we see Genesis 1 like that, you're freed from all the scientific controversy that says, do you know what was happening here? God was building a temple. And then he puts his image in the temple. But the wonderful thing in the, in the more beautiful gospel is that the image he puts in the temple is not lauding himself, it's lauding the creation he has made, which shows that God's heart has always been towards us. 
But if you, if you take it as a, just a literal in the sense of in six 24-hour periods, this is what God did, rather than take it literally and say, do you know what? There is something much more beautiful and wonderful than what might be considered a scientific explanation for how the world came into being. And if that were the way scientifically it was made into being, how does that change me? But if it's about God building a temple and dwelling in his temple, uh, now I, I begin to see here's the beauty of the gospel because now it's about something else. So, so yeah, danger of, uh, of going on, that's it. We've got, we've got a few minutes just before we need to go. It's not necessary for anybody to ask a question or make a comment, but if you would like to, you, uh, you may. Yeah. What I'm thinking when you're talking is that, that that, to a large extent, is is my day job and it's been yours. Mm. When you have to teach kids Shakespeare, that I've done Romeo and Juliet all year, um, if I was to put that in front of the vast majority of pupils I've taught and leave them to their own devices, the most they'd get is a sense of a bit of plot. You might show them the action scenes or the scenes, and that's how you give them a way in. So on that level, they would still be able to find some meaning. But as you understand and you grow and you, you, you work with someone else who understands, the process becomes that it takes on more meaning. So when I think about what the Bible was to me when I was 12, I got phenomenal meaning and comfort and a huge deal out of it. But as I've grown up and been around different people who can shed more wisdom and teach me you become more educated so now you can sit and almost be to understand it at a new level so I think it can be I can teach a bottom set Romeo and Julia and have them excited enough about the plot to be able to get enough meaning to be successful at their level but those that went on then to do they are which is why right yeah but we are, yeah, but, but it needs a... Let, let, me, let me make a distinction here. The problem is, talking at this level, we're talking about everybody being an expert. It's a big difference. The gospel is not about people being experts. It's about the simplicity of God's love for them and their ability to enter the kingdom. I don't know a single person who ever read Psalm 23 who couldn't make sense of it. Not a person. I don't know a single person who's read John 3.16 who couldn't make sense of it. In some context, God so loved the world that he gave. Now, I'll leave here in my Volvo XC90, which has a 2.4-litre twin-turbo diesel engine, working through an incredible electronic mechanical system and an automatic gearbox. If you ask me to explain the detail of that, I couldn't. 
but I can drive the car and it will take me wherever I need to go. There might be some people in that context who need to know how is that put together? How do we fix this if it's broken? How do we recognize if it might break down? How do we drive it to its best capability in the way that it works best? But actually, I don't need to know that to experience the vehicle. So the answer is, can people only know this if they, if they have a priest or someone? Uh, no. But where the priest or someone comes in is to begin to explain some of the nuances and some of the technicalities. You know, of I know some people, some even in here, who didn't realize you have to put oil in the car. And uh, I know one young lady who's not here, so I'll say this, who, when she got her first car, was told you have to put oil in, so she tested the oil and then was try said, it was so messy. Said, what do you mean it was messy? Well, trying to pour the oil in that little hole where the stick came from, I couldn't get it in. This is a true story. I won't give you the name, but it's a true story. I was trying to pour the oil into the dipstick hole, rather than understand if you take this cap off there, you put oil in. So, so it didn't mean the car wouldn't work, but there were parts that needed to know this is how you check the oil. This is where you put the oil in these a little water. Do you understand what I'm saying in this illustration that's not perfect? But, but it's one of the dangers of Christianity has been to push the issue of perfection. And when you push the issue of perfection, it means you have to know everything about everything and interpret everything and understand everything. I believe a person can meet Jesus and go to heaven and never have read a single word of the Bible. They can read the Bible and find truth in it. They can read the Bible and say, I don't know what to make of that. Just as you would in any arena of life where levels of education are not relevant to everybody in society. And I think that's the point that Jen was making. You know, we teach children simple shapes and letters and uh, our little Riley's learning phonetics. So you spell things wrong, right? Because he's learning phonetics. But it's engaging how the child learns to teach them that. Now, there'll come a time that he'll move on from that and he'll grow from that. So I think if we have this in extremes, um, we, we, I think, first of all, we, we diminish the ability of humanity to grab some things. And we also... We also relegate the scriptures and say, if you can't understand all of it, you can't understand any of it. If you don't understand all of it, you don't understand any of it, which, of course, is, is not true to life. Okay. Have you got... Inerrancy. There's been an emphasis on the inerrancy of the Bible, which has created what I believe is now this new reformation, because it has been the word of God being the uh, almost superseding Christ as the word. And so there's a balance coming to it now. That's what I believe in that this is what yeah. this reformation is. It's recognizing that what, if we get our eyes on what we were saying in, in Peter about the fruits of the, the spirits and actually manifesting that, that's really how people are, are drawn they don't need the letter, they just need the, the spirit. And why I said at the beginning about what the, what the people at the beginning didn't have was the Bible, but they had the spirit. It's all turned around that we've had more of the Bible and less of the spirit. 
and the spirit should be what is actually dictating our our journey which should fall in line with that within the scripture that is revealed Nice. Let's say one thing then just to close it off because I think it's a very important thing to remember. We've mentioned this, but it's really critical. Um, When Jesus came and what we now know as the church, you know, whether the ecclesia or whatever, but this this group of believers, um, they did not have the New Testament. They didn't have it, Okay. And uh, by the time some of the New Testament was, was even written, which wouldn't have been widely distributed, most of them were dead. And um, you've also got the issue of in that world, when, when a letter was written to the church in Ephesus or Galatia, uh, they didn't immediately say, right, we've got to circulate this letter. So those in Philippi and everybody in Galatia and everybody in Corinth has got the letter that was sent to us. So actually... It was very localized and very specific. And so, and so they actually were getting a revelation of God without having the New Testament scriptures that we had. They had none of those. And so the problem is people often argue from the point that suggests that this early church had the New Testament. And so they were able to quote Paul or read Peter or make reference to what John had written when actually they didn't. They, they, they had Old Testament scripture, but they were cautious because the way that scripture had then been interpreted was to bring them into law. You must be circumcised. You must return to the sacrifices. You must go to the temple. So they were cautious already of how that scripture had been interpreted to them. They didn't reject it. It was still the Torah and the word of God, but they were cautious because now they were coming into a revelation of the Spirit in Christ, that was saying we received that, but we're seeing the picture differently now. And so New Testament writing comes from that seeing the picture differently. And when we enter into that spirit, we say, do you know what? The most important thing they had was not the Bible, it was the spirit. Which is why Paul, when he's arguing this and saying, don't go back to law, don't, don't get back to those, you've got to see things differently. He makes this statement, he says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Whatever was written, whether in stone or in ink, he gave the two illustrations because they understood stone from the Ten Commandments and ink from the writings that were passed on, whether whether engraved in stone or written in ink, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. What that's Paul saying, if you just take a hold of this and let's say as a new believer taking literally without context what you read in the Old Testament then you had every right to say our objective is to kill every alien that is in the land to suppress all our enemies and to have a physical rule of Israel would be their conclusion if they read it through that old lens so he's pulling them away from that pulling them away and saying, listen, be, be confident in the spirit within you having met Christ. Be confident in that spirit. Understand that that spirit is the major factor guiding you and helping you and leading you. And that spirit, of course, will cause you to, re- to, to 
to, um, to recognize things through Christ. So you will, you will, I'm looking for a word, you will interpret it through Christ. Fresh in their minds was the word was made flesh. Christ came on the scene. He is the image of God. He changed things forever. He is risen from the dead. So they're viewing everything through that lens. Everything through that lens. And then they are writing from that lens. Now our danger is that in the same way they could have read the Old Testament through the wrong lens and say, what we need to do is rise up as Jews and murder people and get them out and take over the world physically... We can now do the same with the New Testament, take it out of its context and say what we need to do is suppress women, make them shut up, make them wear hats. What we need to do is if we get any money or any possessions, we have to get rid of them and give it all to the poor, you know, and so on and so forth. And we have to teach that rich people go to hell and poor people go to heaven. And so, so we again have that same challenge to look at it and say, now where, how does this work? And, and what is the message coming through here? If I look at this literally, what is God saying? And, and my view is that even a child could understand it. Now, let's take even that. Unless you enter the kingdom of heaven like a little child, unless you receive the kingdom of heaven as a little child, you will not enter therein. Literally, that means only child salvation is valid. Unless you receive the kingdom as a little child, you will not enter therein. Now, there's nobody who I know who would claim to, to hold to Scripture who would say, yes, it means you, if you don't receive Christ literally as a child, it doesn't mean just as a, an infant child, it means with the childlike spirit. So again, we're playing games. But if you understand that these are all, are all um, things that are given us to help us to understand about how would a child receive it? A child would receive it openly, freely, you know, with gladness. Let's do this. And you suddenly have a... So the question is, is it as a literal child? Is it with a childlike spirit? But... When you read that, if you have the Spirit working with that, you, you don't find many people that misunderstand that, which is fascinating to me, that more people should misunderstand when actually lots of people do understand because they'll say, I read this and it was amazing, something happened, because that's the work of the Spirit within it. So, so, you know, it's not the Spirit instead of Scripture, but it's the Spirit with Scripture but with the emphasis being on spirit, okay? That's the emphasis because it's the spirit that gives life. And uh, if we can live in that space, then I believe that's what we mean by uh, literally. As the spirit helps us, we understand. Just like, you know, just like when you read Shakespeare or whatever and, and, and you are then caught up in the spirit of it, you think, oh, I didn't realize that's what it was talking about. You know, same sort of thing. So I hope that's helped. Um, and of course, you know, converse, talk, keep thinking, um, because we are not saying, Chris or I, that you should accept what we said literally tonight, because that would be it, that would be hypocritical. But take it literally, that we've given you some information. One last thought from Danny, and then we're... Are we on? Um, yeah, one of the thoughts that I just had just now is, um, I've read a few times that someone said the Bible wasn't ever written to be read 
like by one person sitting in their room on their own. It was often like the letters were written to communities and they were written to be read communally and, and shared. And I think often the temptation as human beings and in society is to take something we read or a piece of information and say, there you go, that settles it, that ends the conversation. Um, whereas I think that life is far more interesting and I think the purpose of the Bible and the reason why it's written and its real power is when it begins a conversation and continues a conversation um, rather than saying that ends it because that's true and therefore that's it and you should all follow that. But I think it should continue a conversation and it should be something that we talk about and disagree on and do you know what I mean? And that, that kind of thing. That's healthy. All right, so be blessed. Let your spirit be at ease and settled because you have the spirit within you, right? The Christ in you and uh, I pray that your your thinking and revelation will be good and I pray that when you do read scripture that the spirit will help you to see what you need to see so that it comes alive for you and is not dead letters that will only ever kill you and then you'll use them to kill somebody else but actually the spirit will cause it all to be alive to you. You have the right thing at the right time in the right place for what you need to have is what I believe. So be blessed. Thanks for being here and uh, yeah, we'll uh, hopefully see you Saturday. Thanks for listening. You might not be aware that The Rock is funded completely through donations from people like yourself. So if you feel like you're part of our community, it would be great if you could make a contribution by visiting our website at www.rockofyork.co.uk and just click on the donate button for more information. Thanks again. Thanks again.